0: When I say I'm in love, you best believe I'm in love, L-U-V. Here comes my guy, walking down the street.
1: Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And for this episode, we are thrilled to welcome the great Richard Goldstein. Hi, Richard. Hello, hi Hi. (laughs) richard is not only one of the great music writers he has some claim to being the very first rock critic of note with his popeye column in the village voice so we're really honored and delighted to host you today richard you've told your story beautifully in your 2015 memoir another little piece of my heart but tell us how you came to write about music in the first place what made you want to do it well I was a very
2: alienated kid growing up in uh, housing projects I guess you call them estates in England but we call them the projects Mm -hmm. in New York I was alienated I read a ton of literature that's what I did instead of playing uh, stickball on the street but I also loved rock and roll and I sang it with the tough kids in the neighborhood I didn't fight with them. They wouldn't actually fight Jewish kids. <laughs> hey, <laughs> one of my yeah, one of my friends told me it would be like fighting girls. So <laughs> it, he didn't say this in a bad way, but so I said, Okay, I don't really want to fight. So but I did sing with them. So I was very attuned to rock and roll, deeply involved with it, but also with Joyce and Dostoevsky and Faulkner and the whole White male schmear of the literary (laughs) canon. So, when it came to writing, you know, I started out as a folky because I thought upwardly mobile music, you know, music of the working class that's actually upwardly mobile. But I really loved, my heart was in the gutter. So, I loved rock and roll. And so, when it came to writing about rock, I just needed a pretext. And the Beatles were the pretext. And I wrote my first piece for my college newspaper when they first you know, emerged in 1964 and called it the second jazz age, I had the thesis that they weren't just musicians. They were ushering in a whole new jazz age. And that was the, the sort of inaugural idea that I had. When it came to The Village Voice, I had read it in the Bronx. I crossed the entire borough every week for the one newsstand that stocked it. I idolized the paper, and uh, I was in journalism school at Columbia, and I went down to The Voice. I got an interview with the editor, and he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be a rock critic, and he looked at me and said, what is that? And I didn't know. I said, "I, I really don't know. Actually, there was no such thing. So he said, just try something. And I went, and I covered a concert at Yankee Stadium with one of these gargantuan bills. No, Stevie Wonder, the Beach Boys, Ray Charles the McCoys, I mean, on and on and on. And I wrote mostly about the fans in the stands because that's what I knew. And they published it on the front page. So more of a rush than any drug I've ever tried. And that's how I started. I went back to my journalism class. They said, how much are they paying you? And I said, $20. And they said, you're bringing the whole earning curve of the class down. <laughs> uh, I did not care. I had hair down to my pubic, and That's it. They were glad to get rid of me and they were wonderful people. But anyway, that's how I started. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, I started by writing about groups and fans that I knew the Shangri-Las are one of those groups that I knew intimately, even having never met them. (laughs) So, because, you know, it's sort of the, the the zeitgeist of of Queens in the sixties, working class, white Queens, And I loved girl groups to begin with, but the Shangri-Las, you know, they had it down in terms of my high school. So it was like, you know, a rolling, rocking version of my high school. They have a much better grasp of working class white culture in the 60s than Saturday Night Fever does. (laughs) I mean, I don't think Nick Cohn, you know, fine, but I don't think he really lived the kind of life that they did. They, they really knew it, and they brought it out in their music. So I loved them. They were
1: the first profile that I did for The Voice. Well, we'll we talk about that piece in a little bit. I wanted to just ask if there was anyone else you had read on music that had, that had inspired you. I'm thinking of, mm-hmm. of things like which we have on Rock's Back Pages, Al Aronowitz's great piece, The Dumb Sound, right. which is all about, like the Brill Building, so that kind of ties in with the the Shangri-Las and so forth. Yes. But did you, would you have read that piece
2: in the post? So I know, I know, I knew Al, I knew all these people. I never read them because I had a rule, do not read other music criticism because I didn't want anything to intrude on my own bizarre ideas about how to do this. (laughs) It's really true. I read social criticism, so I would have read Mailer or Sontag and people like that. And I read New Journalism especially Tom Wolfe, but Gay Talese and other people too. So I had that kind of reading, but I would not read music criticism. So I missed, I didn't read Crawdaddy. You know, I knew about it, but I refused to read it uh-huh. because I just didn't want to write like them. I wanted to write like Tom Wolfe through the political filter of Norman Mailer and the aesthetic filter of Susan Sontag. So that's those were my influences.
1: That makes a lot of sense, and, you know, reading your work right up to the autobiography, the memoir. I know you hate memoirs, but let's just call it a memoir (laughs) for the moment. (laughs) I mean, the writing is, is so elegant, and it's not like the pieces that were written in Crawdaddy. And you say in the book, you know, some people call me the first pop critic. I don't really care if you if somebody else wants to be the first rock critic. Right. Let them. Good luck to them. Yeah. And you mentioned yeah, you mentioned Crawdaddy, and it's just, it's obviously something very different from your Popeye column right. in the it's Village. More versus, middle class. I'll put it that way. It's more <laughs> middle class.
2: I I, yeah. I, I, I want. Other people had the idea that rock was an art form. What I will say about my work is I made that idea popular. Yes. Because my my column mainstreamed. And the reason that happened is because of journalistic technique, new journalistic technique. So I was able to translate the idea to, uh, you know, people who were hungry to understand this music, especially after the Beatles. So I think that's my accomplishment. So th- I don't know if that makes me the first rock critic. I don't really care about kissing mm. on the tree, to tell you the truth. Mm. <laughs> so, but, but I mean, I did popularize it. And what else can a
1: journalist do is to take a good idea and popularize it. Yes. So, yes. You mentioned, I mean, Tom Wolf of course, wrote one of the seminal pieces of like music journalism in his Phil Spector profile, the tycoon of teen. So, but not about music,
2: not about music. No, no not, not, it's about, not, not about anything about
1: music. It's, it's about him. <laughs> no,
2: <It's>, he's <laughs> exactly. a character. He's another yeah, yeah, self-made bizarro character in Tom Wolfe's pantheon. But there's nothing in there about – there's an actual ideology, an actual philosophy, if you will, behind this music and a whole populist aspect to it that Wolfe was not interested in, but as I was interested in all that yeah, stuff. It comes
3: through really strongly in your writing just how much you care about music and how much it's just vital to you. Right. And yeah. you're talking about your writing style, and it sounds like it was something you developed quite consciously – you know, with the influence of Tom Wolfe, new journalism, but it's coupled with this kind of, I don't know if if you would find it a fair description, this obsession with music at that point that drives you to
2: just go for it. Rock and roll gave me the illusion that I was a normal kid, which I wasn't. (laughs) And so I clung to it. I really clung to it. It also completely infused my sexual fantasies. (laughs) I had many sexual fantasies all over the map in terms of sexuality, and they they really focused on rockers deeply. So I had all of this motivation. I think I once told the critic John Rockwell that it wasn't the music. It was the sex that really drew me to rock and roll. And he was kind of shocked. It sounded like a philistine statement, but it really is the truth.
4: Yes, but that's the re- that's the thing that draws so many people to rock and roll. So right. many ro- rock and roll fans are drawn to rock and roll because of sex. Yeah, sig- significantly. And yeah. pop and pop too. Yeah, yeah mean, absolutely. pop I've, is all about nascent uh, and budding. I, I mean, it's, by so it's sexual, by rock and roll, I meant that in the loosest possible yeah, sense. Yeah, sense yeah, of yeah, yeah, And if you extract that, the form fizzles and dies in a peculiar kind. Yeah,
2: of you way. get Eric Clapton. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> very good uh, you know i yeah you know i that's the thing i i only saw it pretty much as a instrument of my sexuality and let me just posit it may not be true no early rock critic knew anything about music they were all english majors okay they were all english majors The the learning about music came after you wrote the pieces <laughs> that can only happen in rock and roll criticism i think that, you know, you you don't study musicology until sort of after the fact. And so that was certainly true. I was an English major and a philosophy minor. And I just found that background to be very common. A lot of these people were working class, people who had gone to what you would call red brick universities. I don't know if they're still called that. Yes. And, yes. you know, in the post-war education boom that we grew up in, where there was room for us in the middle class we got this – suddenly, we were all the first people in our families to really get a college education, and it was free in New York City. It was very good, and it was free. So that, to me, is the matrix of rock criticism and why it emerges when it does.
1: I had forgotten, until I looked back through another little piece of my heart, that that Shangri-La's piece was the first Popeye column, I think. The second. The second, because the Yankee Stadium Sound Blast 66 that you mentioned earlier, that was the first, and then the Shangri-Las was the second. Yeah, either that or I wrote a piece about uh, my my
2: little brother, my younger brother, since he wasn't little, what it was like for him to be 14
1: years old in the Bronx. (laughs) And it was called Gear. Right. Was that what ended up in Tom Wolfe's anthology?
2: Yeah, he called it a journalistic sketch, which I guess it was. Okay. so you know i i didn't think genre there i just thought about my brother and the whole ordeal of, of becoming an adolescent during the pop explosion mm-hmm. sniffing glue and
1: buying clothing <laughs> yes exactly exactly i just wanted to ask you about the Las and and shadow morton i love i love this piece so much the soul sound from sheep's head bay village voice 23rd june 1966 and it starts i think it starts because this is what i've written down they started in clinging blue jeans and long limp hair knee-high boots wailing the three of them swaying while a guy circles the stage on a real motorcycle revving the motor chrome and lipstick gleaming in the spotlight very new journalism it's a wonderful <laughs> piece about an extraordinary group possibly the most extraordinary girl group that america ever produced and <laughs> i say that just on the basis really of about four or five classic singles right i've been obsessed by the Shangri-Las yeah, many for many years, you. as was Amy Winehouse, of course. She was completely obsessed by the Shangri-Las. That makes sense. Many other people have been obsessed by them. But it is, it's is—it's really a wonderful piece. I'll just quote one more thing. So Mary Weiss, the, the, the lead singer, if I've got my memory, if my memory's right, she says, she tells you that, that their steady public is composed of 13 to 17-year-old girls And she says this, which I love. They may buy the Supremes, but they listen to us because the Supremes come on very feminine and chic, but we come on like the average girl who just isn't slinky and sexy. We couldn't do all those oozy baby babies, but the Supremes couldn't get away with leader of the pack. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's a statement no, but, of fact, isn't it? But the rhetoric, you know, what yeah. color are his eyes? I don't oh. know.
2: He's always wearing shades. <laughs> uh, I hear he's bad. He's good, bad, but he's not evil. <laughs> I mean, this, is a, this is a girl's bathroom in a high school yes. in the 1950s yes. or 60s. Yes. And it just It's just
1: perfect. Yes, so it, yeah. is yeah, are, it is perfect. They are, they're, they're remarkable records. They're sort of three-minute melodramas with extraordinary changes right. and changes of time Everything drops out while they're right. doing their bathroom chatter, and then. Then these bombastic strings come back. I mean, it's just amazing stuff, isn't it? I remember just being so intrigued by the name Shadow Morton. I'm like, who is the sort of, you know, specter genius behind these records? So actually, we, we, we managed, we, we happened to have, lying around, as it were, a Shadow Morton audio interview where he talks about the Shangri-Las. So we're just going to hear a clip from that. Is she really going out with
0: him? There she is, let's ask her.
3: Betty, is that Jimmy's ring you're wearing? Mm-hmm. Gee, it must be great riding with him. Is he picking you up after school today?
2: I was wearing
0: a hat back then like you see uh, Stallone wearing. Right now, I'm not the first thing. No, it's not. So I strolled through the door came right and going on stage, and I got him backstage and said, you show. Well, um, yes. Yeah. Sticks. Terrible. Ain't gonna work. About, well, they got all nervous. Now, what? It's not going to work. You're <laughs> not seeing a good job. I got a four-god of them. And I go wear them. And I show them. Yes. And I show tight, tight, tight slim jacket. Well, yeah. in this song, at this part, when you see that part here, you go first, You just have to take the gutter. But I didn't know. They have family (laughs) numbers By the way, where'd you meet him? I met him at the candy store. He turned around and smiled at me. You get the picture? Yes, we see. That's when I fell for the leader of the pack.
1: I like that. I like that a lot. Mark, tell us us about the Shadow Morton audio interview.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's predominantly about his life in the Brill Building, so we'll play another clip in a second about writing Walking in the Sand, but he talks about sort of almost kind of bullshitting his way into a, in, into a gig at the Brill Building and meeting all these people. There's all these pairs of people. There's Lieber and Stoller. There's Barry and Greenwich. There's Wheel and Mann. I mean, it's just like, you know, all this stuff. Then there's people like George Goldner, who's this kind of big character there. Seymour Steen, who later on, of course, became, became a, a major music business figure in, in his own right. So it's, it's tremendously nostalgic for this sort of period. He talks about the insanity of the scene and about how everyone had their own personal styles, about how, you know, dressing well was kind of a very cool part of who you were. Starting to make serious money, you know, suddenly kind of large checks appearing, you know, uh, which he he sort of hadn't imagined in some sort of way. He also talks actually kind of quite extensively about his youth in first of Brooklyn, then Hicksville, Long Island, and also kind of basically becoming a gang member as a kid hanging out with the rough kids, with the ones, the leather-jacketed boys. And then he, he talks about his life, basically how his music business life stopped. Uh, is about alcoholism, uh, about his break from music, how, how, surviving an aneurysm. It's very hard to listen to because there's a lot of background noise, but it's over two hours long, and it's really interesting stuff. Wow. He's such a character. He
2: really, really is. Yeah, well, the, brill, the Brill Building was one of my hangouts. Yeah. I met Lieber and Stoller, and I interviewed right. them and all that. I, I, I don't think I ever met Shadow Morton. But you see, this really shows you the, the whole autodidactic nature of rock music and rock and roll. Before it became professionalized the way it is now, it, it really shows you what a populist form it is, finally. And so it really relates to the whole tradition of common people producing mm-hmm. art. I mean, it's a really important part of of rock and roll that is common. It's as common as as anything, uh, any folk song. It is folk material. I I think it's really
4: important that it also shows how small a business it was back then. And in the same way as in England, it was a very small business, a handful of people like Brian Epstein and people like that, you know, surrounding the Beatles and so on and so forth. And the very, very tight scene. You got a handful of record labels putting stuff out, like Atlantic and so on and so forth. And it's that intimacy gives it a sort of life, which it subsequently lost as it became a a massive corporate bear
2: Now, what else is new? (laughs) <laughs> no, that, that, that's what happens. That, that's the nature of popular art forms is yeah. that they become stylized very quickly. And then the vitality is, is more or less drained out or replaced by something else. And you need a new, but the record industry always has room for a new burst of populism. And that happened with hip hop. Yes. In the parties of the South Bronx. It's the same process. Mm -hmm. It's really important to know that this is part of a populist folk tradition. It happens to be electronic and
1: industrial, but it's still a folk medium. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. My guess is that Tony Sherman, the interviewer, was working on a big Brill Building piece. I don't think I've ever seen that piece, but it was probably from a musician. And there's a wonderful moment in the interview where he asks Shadow to describe the Red Bird office in the Brill Building. And sort of so Morton sort of goes, well, you came out of the elevator. You walked to the end of the corridor. You made a left. Georgie Goldner's office was was on the right and then the, the, down the next corridor was Jerry Lieber. And he was always, you know, he never, he never dressed. He never bothered to dress smart or anything. Like, and it's just this whole, suddenly you get this whole sense of what the office must have been like. I mean, I'm like many music writers obsessed by the Brewer building. And so it was really fantastic to hear this stuff. Right. And, Mark, should we should we hear the yeah, the, the second clip because yes. it's really funny yeah. as well if you can hear it. <laughs> this is
4: this is a little clearer. At this fun, I think.
1: I was
0: so overwhelmed. So, uh, pulling so, a session together. Yeah, I was just so impressed with myself. I mean I'd never run a con like this. I just got bigger and better. You know. Because Jeff Barry that was my excuse for telling uh uh George Sterman that I I needed a band. Because I had a record. They didn't know me, they didn't guy said, bring me a demo. So my, I didn't say that. going to my demo. I said, I have a record company. It's very interesting. So when he got the band, I went to the studio said, I have a record company. I have a band. So what are you talking about? And these were friends of mine. What are you talking about? <laughs> and the con got bigger. So the girls, I was so, I was really taken. There's a 53 viewers I was driving.
3: Well, how did the song get into your... I mean, what, so what happened? You said, holy shit, I don't have a song. I'm from the cover, I'm the side of the road, it's out there, it's the road. What came into your head?
0: I'm starting to write something. I mean, how come, you know... How come that
3: one? Oh, you know, like, yeah, how come that image and that, you know, like... Same as all of them come.
0: Wait till hear no more piss. Wait till you hear people.
2: Oh, i don't see. Like that. yeah, but it wasn't something I've you've been carrying along that, yeah. in your head
4: for a long Oh no.
0: Oh yeah. no. Oh no, 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 no. walking in the sand. Walking hand in hand.
2: the night <laughs> and so. Nobody I mean, carried anything
1: along in their heads. Great. <laughs> I mean, what a, what a yeah. huckster. I don't know if it's the total no, truth, I mean, but the idea that he yeah. pulls a session together, just purely, pure bullshit, and he hasn't even got yeah. a song, and he goes up, sits in his car, and writes Remember Walking in the Sand. If I hear it correctly, I think yeah. it's a wonderful story. He, he, he's,
4: he's, he's he's very funny later on in the interview about not being a musician for start. I mean, some yeah. of the some of the Brill Building people could actually play a piano. He was <laughs> the, one of the ones who couldn't, you know. And right. he talked later about he got a reputation for basically being flaky and walking out and disappearing mid-session and all that. And he said, well, you know, you know if a session's going to, if you're going to have it, if you're 're not talking about album tracks, talking about hit records, he says, you know in five minutes, if you're on in line to make a really great record. And if if you don't get that feeling, he says, just go. Get someone to call you up and make some excuse for you to leave the studio. It's, it's just like, you know, be anywhere than this disastrous thing. But I, 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 you know, as a sort of you know, relative non-musician myself who's, Dumb music. I can, I really like that, that side of stuff.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So you could see that Lieber and Stoller were bebop musicians from LA Mm -hmm. before they wrote rock and rock and roll. Right. You can see the very deliberate kind of almost formal aspect of their songs. Shadow Morton is, is like something out of a Kenneth Anger movie or, (laughs) or uh, a John Retchie novel. And there's a, there's an element there of, a lack of preparation, <laughs> put <it> that way. <laughs> yes. but, 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 but singing is such an important part of gang culture in the 50s right. and 60s. It's so important. It's like uh break dancing or graffiti today. Mm-hmm. So that's why you get that sort of, uh, again, that folkloric quality that I would consider that he wrote folk music, you know, Barbara yes. Allen or, uh, or any, any traditional folk song, That's what you get an urban version of that with electronics and sound effects, just like some kind of Warner Brothers cartoon. Mm -hmm. And it works very well because it, it hits you right on the street, which is what folk
1: music is supposed to do. It's supposed to hit you where you live. Yeah, that's very good. The, I mentioned you mentioned Kenneth Anger because all the sort of bad boys in the Shangri La's songs, they're always wearing leather. They're straight out of Kenneth Anger's movies. There's something quite homoerotic about it. I don't think Shallow yeah. Morton certainly wasn't gay, but no, no, no. But, but it's, there's something quite homoerotic about these, these bad boys that, that yeah. the Shangri La's are singing about. I mean, Kenneth
2: Anger, you know, I once heard him give a lecture to say that motorcycle gang in Scorpio Rising was a straight motorcycle gang. There were no gay guys in that film. It's just a director's eye. So that's, it's not homoerotic, it's erotic. Yes, <laughs> right. And if you happen to be gay, it's homoerotic. But right. if you're a girl, it has some other mean, some other way in.
1: Yes, that way. but they were really honest about the attraction to, like, bad boys, weren't they? Those songs. Very important. You know? I mean, you could say you could hear that maybe in some other yeah. girl group records. You know, My Boyfriend's Back by the Angels, but that's not a bad boy. And the Ronettes weren't really singing about bad boys. But right. the Shangri-Las, it was really, like, up front in a kind of sort of campy way, you know, which yeah, is beautiful. Yeah. But it really,
2: it's the, when you look under the surface, it's the popularization of the hipster yeah. that they're right. talking about. and, yes. and it just it's, but it's in teenage terms, yeah. so it's, they would not have read Norman Mailer. But no. it's the same process. Yeah, in the sixties, this becomes the counterculture. Yeah. So you might say that they are one of the roots of the counterculture is the worship of bad boys
3: yeah (laughs) i love that you write about it the combination of high tragedy and low camp yes and i love that about that music right. is that on the one hand you've got all this really kitsch really naff kind of I mean yeah. the motorbike sounds in leader of the pack it's like it's so surface level kind of shallow like obvious sort of stuff but because of that it takes on this other set of meanings right. and it becomes just fun and, and, and interesting and camp in you know in as you, you mentioned Susan right. Sontag earlier but it is exactly that it's, well, I mean, it's I th- just great I think
2: camp always has an implicitly tragic side because it's about failure <laughs> yeah. no and 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 so that there is a certain failure in this yeah. music yeah.
1: cue susan sontag right i'm sure yeah. that notes <laughs> right. on campus say like, was a was a big influence very important yeah. this so even though the audio interview is mainly about the brill building and touches quite a lot on the shangri-la's it doesn't go all the way up to the new york dolls don't get a mention at all but of course it's worth mentioning that that morton did go on to have the odd, sporadically, he had these huge hits. With right? ghastly bands like Vanilla Fudge. Yeah, so you, you keep hanging <laughs> on. Society's Child by Janice Ian, a very different kind of kind oh. of music. He even, and then-
4: I, I allegedly produced the studio version of Iron Butterflies in the Garden of Vida, yeah, which well, is a cultural a crime against culture. It, 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 of, it's, yeah. on,
1: it's on this compilation. Right. The, that <laughs> version. Of Ina right. Davida. So, yeah, I mean, these are crimes against pop. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> but I do- no, well, I mean, Ina Davida, baby. Baby. <laughs> That's what makes it great. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And then the New York Dolls, I mean, he produced the second Dolls album because, of course, Johansson and Thunders and all of them were just obsessed by the Shangri-La's. I mean, I used to see Johnny Thunders playing in London. He would always do this great version. Even junked out of his mind of give him a great big kiss, and he'd sort of do the the, the dialogue thing with right. whoever right. was I don't know playing bass in the band. <laughs> <Right. laughs> right. you, know, you have to do the kiss sound they, too. They literally you know, would do a little smoochy thing. And Thunders yeah. was was not that. Wouldn't come naturally to Johnny right. Thunders, right? <laughs> but well, anyway. well, again,
2: joy and failure, empathy for failure, mm-hmm. is yeah, part yeah. of the sensibility of camp, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. I wanted to go from the Shangri-Las to the birds because there's this rather beautiful photo book that's just come out that BMG have published. Lots of great. Birds photos from 1964 to 67. And the fact that your very first voice piece was this review of this multi artist like festival pop happening i think you call it at yankee stadium and you write of the birds i mean you're not that impressed by the birds you say the group seemed incapable of sustaining effective harmony in person and their ambiguous rugger rhythms lost themselves in a maze of echo and feedback i wanted to touch on this because you famously shrunk rock and roll down to rock. You were, you were the first music writer to just talk about rock music. And that was a, a pivotal moment, I think. And the birds are a very important act in maybe the transition into into the world of rock they were a response to the beatles they were like a beatleized dylan as your friend lillian rocks i think described them and i just wondered how you remember that if we can call it a transition how you recall that transition yeah. into the post british invasion world of of american music well first of all uh Dylan plugging in his guitar and
2: all the tumult that followed. I, I happened to be on Dylan's side and that not, I'm not always on Dylan's side, but I, I, I was at that. And, and I mean, so essentially if you take the sort of sensibility of folk music as it was innovated in the village and all of that, and you combine it with rock and roll, you get rock. That's what it is. Those meaning laden lyrics are folk music, but the, Music itself, the beat and all of that, that's rock and roll. So you put those things together, you get the birds, who started out, I believe, as folk musicians, as did the Love and Spoonful, Mm -hmm. the Mamas and the Papas, and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. So you can see that folk music is a major infusion that produces the synthesis that is rock. Then it goes way beyond that via the Beatles and other groups. So that makes perfect sense to me that there would have to be a new word to describe that fusion. And I didn't like folk rock. I I don't like those hyphenated words Mm -hmm. because it's not folk anymore, but it is a folk music derived from rock and roll, so rock. And so that's what I think about the birds. It's a rock group, but really it's a folk group with electronic instruments. Very, very careful. Probably the best popular arrangements of Dylan songs that I've ever heard, not to mention Pete Seeger. Yes. So I think I really credit them with that. The sound on, in Yankee Stadium is is not to be praised. You know, <laughs> no, I mean, I can imagine? I mean, you couldn't hear the Pope when he was there. <laughs> so you know, I, I I focused on the fans. And yeah. as far as uh, rating them, I made many errors when I tried to rate rock bands. Many. <laughs> sergeant pepper being the most notorious yeah sure. but I, 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 there, there are I, yeah. there are others too so I'm still, yeah, I'm maybe still this still, was one
4: i'm still slightly cross about your dismissal of jimmy hendrix at monterey so that that sort of
2: rankled. did i do that still- yeah oh my god i didn't even remember that <laughs> listen i did try to interview him and he was in fact nodding at the time right. and his shirt was stained with vomit so you know, i didn't I didn't write about it. I never would write about it somebody who might have been on heroin because the drug laws were so horrible that I would never write about it. Um, But
4: but out of interest, I mean, not that you ever completely stopped writing about music, but why did you stop substantially writing about music?
2: Well, first of all, death. The death of some uh, rockers whom I Mm adored, especially Janis Joplin. Mm -hmm. She was really the trigger. I developed a kind of aphasia. I couldn't listen to music without crying. I mean, uh, it was, it's unbelievable. Sort of, it sounds horribly corny, but mm-hmm. the fact is I couldn't really even write a paragraph about music. It was so upsetting. and right. The inability of people to, to save her from being a ward of the record industry. Right. And the people who gave her the drugs, and I won't name names, but I know who they are, mm. and all of that. And she was the person I felt closest to. In the rock scene of all the rockers that I got to know. And so this really triggered a a vast disillusionment. And then finally, the whole collapse of the revolution, because I sincerely believed that rock was a tool of revolutionary liberation. I really believed this and it collapsed. You know, so Yeah,
4: well, one of the pieces we're posting this week is you're thinking about the 60s from the Village Voice in 1988. It is very much a- about that. I mean, you say, lurking beneath the myth lies another image of the 60s. This was the child we bore, rocked, had high hopes for, and adored until it died a slow and painful death. Yeah. Which is very much what you're saying. But also, you're know, very interesting because talking earlier, you talk about, let's say, the way this stuff is revisited and looked at again. And you say the 60s were a creation of red brick rebels. But the '60s revival has been perpetrated by and for a much more privileged, less prophetic minority. The counterculture has become a coterie whose members don't trust anyone under thirty thousand, which is just brilliant. On anyone under thirty thousand, as opposed That's to nothing today.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: but you know, as opposed to anyone over thirty, which was the line right. from back back then, it's,
2: right. Like, it's, it's just
4: terrific. right. But yeah, so um, did you ever in New York in the seventies? Did you ever get into like the disco culture, David Mancuso, the loft, any of that sort of scene? Or yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, at first I, I had nothing to do with music. I re- refused yeah. to go there. I refused to write about it. Mm-hmm. I cut my hair. Yeah. I moved to a commune in Connecticut. I had to be far away, as far away as possible. Mm-hmm. With disco, I was already. I had already more or less come out, right, as a gay man. So that's a whole other broadcast. But but in any case, and the disco culture was the emergence of a gay sensibility and its merger with black music. Yes. Specifically with black music, mm-hmm. with R&B. And so I interviewed a lot of those producers. It drew me back into music. I did go to disc. I did go to the loft. I took Susan Sontag to the loft
4: oh fantastic (laughs) fantastic That's, that's
2: that's fabulous it was her first night out after her breast cancer surgery right and i suggested that we go and she wanted to go and we went she loved it so she said. But, but <laughs> you know, I I, I love that place. It was like a subway train when the lights go out. Yeah, And it's very crowded and everybody is jiggling and moving together. Yeah. That's what it reminded me of. It was a very special place. Mm-hmm. But, there, you know, I went to Paradise Garage and The Saint and all of that. Sure,
4: sure. No, I mean, it, 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 it's an area which is of great interest to yeah. all three of us, you know. I yeah, mean, it, it should be. And should I don't be. think it, it's treated... Well, now I think people are taking it very seriously, writing about it and thinking about it. But for a long time, it was a very much an underground culture. And its treatment, the treatment of people who went to Disco's was homophobic and racist in equal measure. Right. And so really right. no one was talking about it. I mean, the Rolling Stone magazine was a cup of... Vince Aletti would occasionally write something about Disco. No, no, no,
2: no. He wrote regularly. Yeah. I mean, he's really the authority... Yes, yes. ...on, on the, the, the origins and development of yes. Disco. yeah. No, yes. I, see,
4: I was very interested to hear that you you, yeah. you
2: were past that. I've really asked that yeah. But only today. as an amateur, literally a lover, <laughs> sure. a lover of it. Poppers, you know, yeah. I had, had the whole accoutrements <laughs> and, and everything, you know. I, you know, I, I, I loved the, the idea that I could dance. And disco is a very utopian music, yes. like rock in some ways. It's just very much about the ideal of self-possession, survival, yeah community and all of all of those Mm countercultural things are kind of immersed in a kind of bath of rhythm that to me that makes it a a very important music fabulous the backlash was inevitable i mean inevitable
1: Richard, you talked about coming out, and in another little piece of my heart, I can't find the page right now. But you talk about your slightly ambivalent feelings of being attracted to to guys like Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead. These these slight you know, I tell you? because and you 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 talk about the way men became less locked and loaded in those days and more kind of feminized with long hair right. and so forth. Right, and you mentioned Bob Weir as as someone who it was like a hippie pinup The the rest of the grateful dead were, were eyesores <laughs> let's be honest yeah. but Bob Weir was a pretty good looking guy and so I, I suppose it, my question would be I mean was it how easy was it to to be sort of getting in touch with with those sexual feelings in the middle of the hippie era well it could have been easy but it was
2: always casual what was missing from the hippie era was love right. homosexual love sure the sex was There was even a California term called a gay off. No, we'll have a gay off. But there was no emotional attachment. For me, it was all about emotion. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I would have stayed with women. I would have been with women just if it had just been sexual. But for emotional reasons, Mm -hmm. I was drawn to men. Bob Weir to me looked like a giant willow tree. (laughs) And, and, you know, I was completely lost when I met him. I, so, but, but there were others too. I could have written about Mick Jagger when I first saw him, you know, looking like a kind of gay banshee, you know, that, that, that too. But, but so, uh, I didn't even know about the Bowie connection at the time. Mm -hmm. And when glam came along, I thought, this is not gay. Uh. This is heterosexual <laughs> <laughs> this is heterosexual fooling around. This is the term that was used in the Bronx to have to mean casual gay sex, fooling around. Okay. And I thought they're fooling around. This is not the real thing. The real thing is something much deeper. So, I continued to be drawn to musicians but on a very different, a more candid level. It just took a lot of emotional work, a lot of love affairs, some love affairs for me to really sort of come to terms with this. Yeah. It's very very difficult. Very difficult. Especially if if you could actually let's say function heterosexually and be happy with the sexual part of heterosexuality, why would you be gay? That's a really difficult question.
4: Did the Stonewall riots? Did you take notice at the time of Stonewall when it occurred? Yeah.
2: I was working upstairs. We had our office was right above the oh, bar. Oh really? So I was working upstairs. I look out the window. I see this crowd, you know, the the riot. My colleagues were all looking out the window, and I say, "Wow, I really hope those people get their rights," because I did not think that had anything to do with me. Right. I was a married man. I just didn't think, you know, the identity had was was mine. Right. It was it was something I sympathized with. Right. But actually, it took me another decade and another couple of relationships to really understand what it had to do with me. That's extraordinary.
4: I mean, marvelously, we have your old friend Lillian Roxon's report for uh, the Sydney Evening Herald yeah, right. about Stonewall a week after it took place. We've had that on the site, yeah. which is you know, for, for us is we're very, very pleased to have that. She was wonderful.
2: Yes. That, that's she was a wonderful person. But if you just think about the queer contribution mm. to early rock criticism, you would have Paul Williams. Right. I'm just talking about queer now. I'm not talking about who's, you know, bisexual or what, queer. Yeah. You would have Vince You would have Carmen Moore. You would have uh, lots of other people too. And me. There was Mm -hmm. a whole group of Danny Fields is another. Great friend of Rock's Back Pages, yes. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, well, and me too. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. yeah. An old friend of mine. So, I mean, you know, there is a – but which other males would have actually noticed these gargantuan male figures – Except if there wasn't some sort of queer component, and it doesn't mean that none of the good rock critics are straight. There's lots of them. <laughs> that some, you know, really many. But but there's a large queer contingent. Barry Walters, somebody else I can mention. Mm. So, you know, there is a sort of element that it, it sort of made sense that you would be drawn to the individual musician in a way that was similar uh-huh. to the emotions of girls,
4: yes, yes. of fans. Yeah. Every yeah. time
2: I saw girls screaming at rock stars, which I did sometimes close up, I envied them. I was so moved by the spectacle. And I didn't realize that I wished I could have done that too. Right. But but, but it wasn't And finally just moving to me. Yeah. Mm. But just understanding that. And what it meant, I think you had to have some kind of orientation, even if it was subliminal, which it was for me, to make that really stick in
1: your writing. Mm -hmm. Richard you wrote beautifully about California you went to San Francisco you experienced the hate Ashbury scene you also wrote I think in Goldstein's greatest hits there's a piece called the Billy James Underground and Billy's going to be on the podcast in a month or two which Mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to he's going to talk about Bob Dylan and Laurel Canyon and all of that but you didn't move to California like a lot of East Coasters did and settled there you stayed in new york and you've always been in new york and another piece that we're going to feature by you on the home page is it's just this wonderful little review of talking heads at cbgb in 1976 it's february 1976 when they're still a trio you talk of them as a, a triad and it's just a wonderful just a fantastic sort of piece of village voice writing really if Jonathan Richmond plays the kid who ate his snot David (laughs) Byrne plays the kid who held his farts in he doesn't move like any rock star ever he wobbles and cranes his neck and his voice rises as though he's about to yell at his mother (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> absolutely brilliant uh, really, uh, you also too much about, is not enough <laughs> no you also said just a couple of, uh, i love it. their songs have a shifting texture somewhere between doo-wop and art song which i think is brilliant it's perfect and then you say cbgb has a way of pummeling its best bands into the media before they're ready like an incubator with a false bottom well uh, <laughs> of course i mean this is january 76 and a lot of those bands are not going to fall through the bottom. And I mean, so were you were you kind of going to CBGB a lot, even though you had fallen out of love with writing about music? You were writing about many other things for the Village Voice. You became the executive editor there. But were you still kind of paying attention to what was happening in New York musically?
2: Yeah, in a way. I mean, as a, I was the arts editor before I was the executive editor. And I ha- we had to cover CBGB, so I... Assigned James Walcott. Don't know oh, if yes. you know his.
1: Of course. The critic. Of course.
2: Yeah. I just talked to him and found out that he hung out there. I always, I wasn't ever looking for a professional, always for somebody who lived the beat. Right. It was really in the beat before the beat. Yeah. And so he was our main person to write about groups like the Talking Heads. It's
1: not love, which is my face, which
3: is a building.
2: So, I was more interested as an editor than I was as a you know so we outed Elton John, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> he denied it <laughs> now he's an, he's a he's a queer art collector, but okay <laughs> that's entertainment. <Yeah. laughs>
3: Where do you get the metaphors that your writing is replete what, with? That Barney just I coined never a met couple a metaphor
2: I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> That's,
1: but I mean,
3: there's one that I love in your you book. Know, in the first chapter, you describe the folk trio, Peter, Paul and Mary's version of Blown in the Wind, as having a beat about as driving
2: as a tuna melt. A t- <laughs> tuna melt.
3: Just yeah, I know. Oh, listen, when I read it. it's Judy. Just, it's
2: brilliant. Judy Collins would put Jesus to sleep on the cross. That is probably the (laughs) cruelest thing I've ever written. The thing is, if you're you're trying to describe music and you don't know anything about music, you have metaphor. That's what you turn to because Mm. you're you're not describing it in musical terms. You have to figure out how to evoke the feeling of the song without knowing anything about the formal aspect and how it's put together. So metaphor comes in very handy. It helps to have read James Joyce. my favorite writer (laughs) there's more james joyce
1: in that work than meets the eye in the book you talk about testifying at the trial of the chicago seven and i wondered what you thought of was it aaron sorkin's film with sasha baron cohen and he must have seen that right yes (laughs) what did you what did you with any did you hate it did you No, i mean but it wasn't It wasn't wasn't what happened. It's
2: like Oliver Stone's movie on the doors. It's not the doors. It's not Jim Morrison at all. Mm. It's Oliver Stone in leather. It's not Jim Morrison. (laughs) So that film is not the Chicago seven. They are much more serious people, first of all. And Abby Hoffman was an anarchist genius, for example, much more intelligent, a little autodidactic, that kind of intelligence, Mm -hmm. but still very, very carefully thought people. And they, they were all like that. There was not a well, with the exception of Jerry Rubin, maybe not a, a loony in the bin, mm. you know. So I I missed that in the movie. Uh, also, they whitewashed Tom Hayden. Well, no, Tom Hayden was a serious political ideologue. That that that's sure. what he was. Sure. You know, tactically he was very earnest and all that. I remember that quality in him. With Abby Hoffman, tried to convinced the authorities in Chicago that they were going to put acid in the reservoir. And I heard him do this. And I asked, and asked him, afterwards, how can you do that? That That's unbelievable. That's a terrible thing. He said, well, everyone knows that you, the chemicals would neutralize the acid. It's impossible. They did not know that. <laughs> and they, they, they actually opened up sewers, planning to put prisoners in the sewers. So they thought half a million people were coming there. So th- this is the kind of hyperbole that Abby but he thought very, you know, he was into Antonin Artaud, the theater of cruelty. Sure. You know, McLuhan was a big buzzword with him. He was very Hamish, to use that Yiddish word. I just proved
4: up a, a piece of yours, a report from Chicago, which is just really interesting because you, you, what you're doing is describing what it feels like rather than
2: actual sort of events. What was it like? I mean, how long were you there for that that sort of? I was there for the whole thing. Right. I was going to go with a colleague who named Don McNeil, who wrote about communes and all that. Mm-hmm. That was his beat. But he died, so I had to go alone. That's it. I, I was. I met Jean Genet, who had been assigned <laughs> by Esquire to uh, cover the event, and who kept saying in English, "Oh, the police! Those bellies!" He said, "Those bellies." <laughs> it was like, But I, you know, I had the T-shirt over my face for mace and for tear gas, I mean, and I had Vaseline for mace. And, you know, I I had a situation where I heard a policeman shoot at me and disappeared from the scene. I literally disappeared. And the next instant, I was five blocks away. Wow. I had these vast adrenal experiences. So I understood how exciting it was. Mm -hmm. But then on the way Coming home on the train, I took the train to write the piece, I realized that I was becoming this horrible maniac, actually, and that it was very dangerous for me. So it was a turning point for me. Wow. And the only recourse to a regretful revolutionary is depression. So that, right. that's what happened. I think that's what happened to the whole counterculture. Sure. Finally, in the end, we did not want the country to collapse. Even the black rioters, they had to make a choice. Should we arm ourselves Mm -hmm. or what? And the answer was no. We are not taking the next step. We do not want our nation to collapse. We want a different nation. So there was a depressed quality to the aftermath. Of course, the
4: awful paradox now is that diametric political opponents, the new right, absolutely do seem to want the nation to collapse in certain ways.
2: That's one of the differences. Yeah. The the insurrectionary impulse is not different. Mm the presentation of danger is not different either, but the idea of what you want America to be. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think because it's racially grounded, Mm. you know, the lost cause is really what it is. Yes. Do you think that, do you think America is going to fall apart, Richard? No, because we've been through it before. Right. 110 cities in flames, you know, hundreds, thousands of universities closed down. All of that stuff. No, we have been through this a number of times. And the country has a tendency to balance itself. That doesn't mean, though, that it can't fall apart. Hmm. I just don't think the odds are that it will.
1: You don't think because we're in a very different and differently mediated age with people in their silo chambers? You know, the, the QAnon thing. Do you do you not think that it's it's different now? Well, why is the QAnon thing different from the Mayan
2: Death Star that people on acid warned me about? <laughs> it's not. Right. It's not. The craziness was on the left. Now it's on the right. I just have this perspective. I could be wrong, like I was for Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> you no, know, but I... I you're going to have to write a follow-up piece. about. It will be on my, be on my gravestone. <laughs> Pan Sergeant Pepper.
1: <laughs> yeah. You said so at the end of the book, which I'll again, I'll just repeat for, for any listeners who haven't read. You have to get this book. Anyone who's listening to this, it's one of the, the great music like and sixties memoirs, another little piece of my heart, My Life of Rock and Revolution in the sixties. And at the end of it, you talk about joining the Occupy Wall Street people in twenty eleven, and you say the urge to kick out the jams was still within me. So eleven years on, is that is that still there or is it kind of abating a little? Well, I don't know if I can kick anymore. <laughs> <laughs> But can I can, I can walk. You can, can make walk. jam.
2: It's, you know, it's a little sciatica, but I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it is. Of course it is. Yeah. But mostly in the form of sympathy and solidarity yeah. and being able to write about, with the Black Lives Matter demos, I was able to write a piece extolling the protesters with an illustration of somebody on a skateboard moving through flames. Because right. I, I greatly value that tendency in young people. To kick out the jams it's what produces historical
1: change yeah. more than anything yeah so let's hope definitely let's hope let's hope <laughs> well it's it's been an absolute treat having it's you as wonderful, our guest richard wonderful to, you're, wonderful a, to you're see a lovely you guys. guy with a brilliant mind and it's been <laughs> a real pleasure I'm a journalist. You. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just words, right? It's just it's brilliant. It's just about words.
2: this thick. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but anyway, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Well, listen again. Go out and buy Richard's books and read them online. Read them on Rock's back pages. Got some incredible pieces by you there, Richard. And that's it from us. I think we're going to say we're going to say goodbye. We will be back in a couple of weeks or so with. Peter Buck of R.E.M. and Luke Haynes, formerly of the auteurs. Well, formerly of R.E.M., formerly of the auteurs. They've made a second album together. We're going to talk to them about music journalism and all kinds of other things. And then Billy James sometime in the future, which should be cool. Which is great. So we're going to say goodbye. Thanks again so much. Thanks so much, Richard. It's been great. Bye-bye.
3: That concludes episode 136 of the Rocks Back Pages Podcast. Many thanks to special guest Richard Goldstein. Find him at richardgoldsteinonline.com and buy his books, including another little piece of my heart, at any good bookshop. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murrison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages Podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. You know you got it. What?
2: That was such, you're you're such great interviewers. That was just a lot of fun. Oh, good. I'm so pleased.
1: A lot of fun for us. Thank you so much.